We said the last Sunday of the month, so it's our family Sunday also, so our children stay in here with us. Uh, We do this for several reasons. Uh, One is we do communion on this day, and we want them to be able to see this, but we want them to be able to experience just what we do um, as a large church together. want them to experience what it is to sit through the preaching of the word. Um, And so I don't want to encourage you, if you are an adult here today, you are discipling all those little eyes around you. You're discipling them as they see you take notes, as they see you listen, as they see how you engage in the word. And so it's an amazing just ministry that you have here, which you don't even know you're going to have, but you get to disciple uh, my children who are here and so many other children that are here also. We are doing communion. We do have an open communion, which means you do not have to be a member here, but we do ask that you are a member of the body of Christ, meaning that you have believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Uh, Today we're going to be in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, so I'll let you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to there. If you do not have a Bible, uh, we have some uh, Bibles in the chairs in front of you. You're free to grab one of those, and if you'd like, that can be your Bible, and you can take it home with you. Uh, One other thing to mention at the end of the service, uh, this is the Kaiser's last Sunday with us, so giant, aww, there it is. So it is their last Sunday, they're moving to Italy uh, later this week, Uh, and so that's, we're kind of envious of that in some ways. Uh, So at the end of the service, we are just going to have them come up. We're going to pray for them. And there's also going to be a cake in the back. Uh, Not that we're celebrating, but we're mourning as we eat cake. And so, (laughs) um, 500 years ago, October 31st, Martin Luther nails the 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg door. The Catholic Church had begun to depart from the teaching of Scripture. They began to teach justification by works, meaning we can earn our way into the very presence of God. And so Martin Luther, he posts the 95 Thesis. What he's trying to do is to reform the church. He's trying to have a conversation with the church that they would come back to the biblical teaching of Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone. However, Upon nailing this thesis on the door, it became apparent the Catholic Church was not wanting to reform, but rather uh, they excommunicated Luther and soon they sentenced him to death. But this did not stop him. He eventually translated the entire Bible into German, which was the common language of that day where he was. He wanted everyone to have the Bible, for them to read the Bible, for them to know what the Word of God said. And he began to write at a voracious rate articles about the Christian life. He wanted Christians to know what it meant to be a Christian, what it meant to live out their faith in everyday life. And so while the Reformation might be best known for the renewed doctrine of justification by faith, one of the other things that it did is it also renewed a biblical understanding of vocation. And so that's where we have our title today, Luther and Vocation. Now, it's not vacation, So we're not talking about vacation, not going to Italy for vacation, but uh, vocation. And the word today, it's been narrowed down to primarily refer to one's job, one's place of employment. But that's not the way it was used 500 years ago. And so if we're going to understand what Luther was talking about, we need to make sure we understand the definition that he was using. Vocation is the Latin word for calling. And Luther used it to teach how believers are to respond to God's call in every dimension of their lives. 
And so when he, de- when he talked about vocations, he was mentioning fatherhood, motherhood, son, daughter, student, employer, church member, football player, soccer player, basketball player, state worker, military, hairstylist, retiree, neighbor, grandmother, grandfather, pastor, friend. You get the point? In all the professions that we have, in all the offices that we hold, in all the things that we do, those are the vocations that we have. And to be clear, we hold a variety of those, right? Like I am a father, I am a husband, I am a son, and I am also uh, um, a pastor, so we have various vocations. So you probably don't hold just one, you probably hold two, three, four, five, six, or more. And so today, what we're going to see is how or what God's uh, word says about our vocation and how we use them for the very glory of God and for the good of others. And so, if you have your Bibles, we're going to read chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. I want to encourage you to stand. Here at Timberline, we stand when we read the Word of God. We do this because we believe it's been inspired by God, comes with His full authority, and so we do so to honor God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as, a sojour- as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, give us a biblical understanding today of vocation. God, help us today. May your spirit work through your word. And may we see that, God, you have placed us in so many different vocations. And those vocations are the very context, the means in which you are calling us to live out our faith, empowered by your Spirit, that we would glorify you, that our works and our actions would be a fragrant offering to you, and that they would bring glory to you, that they would reveal your love, that they would reveal your service, that they would reveal the gospel to those around us for the hope that they, would, that they would come to repentance and believe in you as well. Father, we thank you for this morning. Be with us as we look at your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, verse four, well, we're gonna answer four questions. And those questions are in your outline. 
The first question we come to are, who are believers? In verse 4, Peter says, and just so you know, I might get Peter and Paul messed up a lot today. Because a lot of times I say Paul said, and now I'm saying Peter said. So if I say Peter, I mean Paul. um, And you'll just have to know what I mean. But hopefully we don't get it messed up too much. But in verse 4, Peter says that Jesus is a living stone. He's been rejected by men, but chosen by God. Then in verses 6 through 8, Peter uses Old Testament scriptures on proving on how Jesus is the stone that has become the cornerstone that has been rejected by men, that Israel, that the Pharisees have rejected. And uh, so he uses those Old Testament texts to prove that Jesus is the foundation for our faith. And then in verse 5, Peter switches over to talk about who we are. And so in verse 5, he's going to talk about us as Christians. And in verses 9 through 10, he's going to unpack what he means. So in verse 4, he talks about Jesus. And then in verses 6 through 8, he unpacks what he's talking about. Verse 5, he's mentioning us. And then in verses 9 and 10, he unpacks who we are. And so there's kind of that parallel structure there. In verse 5, he gives us two pictures that he wants us to see. If you look at it, number one, he says, we are living stones being built into a spiritual house. In the Old Testament, God dwelt in a temple. But now because Jesus has come, God no longer dwells in a temple made with stones, but he dwells in a spiritual building in the church, in the body of Christ, in his people, in us. Paul says something very similar in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you also are being built into a dwelling place for God. Talking about that we now become the very temple of God. The very place that God dwells. And then he also says, the second picture he wants us to have is he says, we are a holy priesthood. Now a good definition for the word holy means devoted to God. Just as God is holy, he's devoted to himself. He's pure in all that he does. So we're called to be holy, meaning devoted to God. Now priests in the Old Testament uh, were the ones who entered the temple. They were the ones who entered into the presence of God, and they offered sacrifices to God in worship. And so just as the Old Testament temple points to Jesus, so now does the Old Testament priesthood. In the New Testament, Jesus comes as our perfect high priest, and he offers the one perfect sacrifice for all times. He offers himself on the cross that whoever believes in him would be forgiven, would be justified, and would enter into the family of God. And so now, what we see, because uh, just as Jesus is a living stone, we become living stones. Jesus is a priest, and so now we become priests. Do you see that? Jesus comes as a living stone. He is the temple of God. And now in Him, we become the temple of God. Jesus comes as our high priest. Now because of our faith in Him, we become priests. So there's a couple things we just need to see here as we're unpacking this. Number one, as believers, we're united to Jesus. What this means is who He is and what He has um, and what He possesses is now true for us as well. Jesus is a living stone, so we become living stones. Jesus is a priest, so we become priests. Jesus is the Son of God, we are the Son of God. Jesus holds all treasures of God, so now we hold all the treasures and blessings of God. What is true of Jesus, because we're united to Him in faith, now becomes true of us. Another truth we see, and this is the one we're primarily going to be focusing on today, is that now as believers... We enjoy the unhindered, unadulterated presence of God 
at all times. Don't miss this. He says, we are living stones being built into a temple. So we are the very place that God dwells. So today, take great heart. God dwells with us. You know that, right? God dwells with us today. We are the church. And when we gather, He is with us. And also, even as individuals, we also are the temple and the priest. And so He dwells with us. We have His Spirit in us. But we also know that we are a part of the priesthood. Together, we form the priesthood. Individually, we are priests. In verse 9, it expands on this. If you look, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. So here in chapter 5, we are a holy priesthood. In chapter or in verse 9, we are a royal priesthood. We are kingly priests. Do you know the only other kingly priest? is Jesus. Priests come from the, from the tribe of Levi. Kings come from the tribe of Judah. Only Jesus, Jesus brings those two together. Now, in Jesus, we become kingly priests. A holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's who we are. We dwell in the very presence of God. We belong to God. We are devoted to God. We have been chosen by God. God. We are a chosen age. Isn't that good news? Like, no one becomes a believer by accident. God chooses to bestow His grace upon us and to save us. God chooses to make us a part of His family forever. Hear this. If you're a believer, whoever you are, whatever you do, God loves you and He's chosen you to be a part of His family. He dwells with you. You, at every moment of every day, experience the presence of God. Even when we don't think we're experiencing it, the truth of the matter is that His Spirit dwells in us. And the biblical truth is you are a priest, a part of the kingdom of priests, who are now part of God's family. And God promises us that He fills us with every heavenly blessing and He gives us His joy and His peace. Is who we are as believers. Look at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. How did we become that? That's what the second part unpacks. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How did we become part of the people of God? Because we have received mercy. How have we received mercy? Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes. He's the stone rejected by men he's the one who is taken to the cross nailed to the cross that by his death him being a substitute for us standing on the cross in our place he bore the wrath that we should have received so that by faith in him we would be forgiven so that by faith in him we could be adopted into his family so that by faith in him we would be saved and forgiven for all of eternity look at verse 24 in chapter 2 just kind of uh, let your eyes go down there. It says, He, meaning Jesus, Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that refers to the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. By Jesus' wounds we have been healed. This is who we are. 
by faith in Jesus, we're united to Jesus, we're made into the very temple of God, we're made into the very priesthood of God, that we would forever, forever, in all of eternity, experience the presence of God. Listen, if you're here as a Christian, you are not alone. Not just because you're sitting with people right now, but you're not alone. The Spirit of God dwells within you at every moment, at all times, in all places. Isn't that the good news of the gospel? When Jesus says in Matthew 28, verse 20, at the end of, go therefore make disciples, he says, and lo and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That wasn't just, hey, go get him, you can do it. But literally, he is with us now through his spirit. And he builds us into the priesthood. He builds us into the temple. So right now, we're the temple. We're the priesthood. We are the very dwelling place of God on earth. That is the church. So how do we live then? That's a good question, right? Like, okay, we're this temple, we're this priesthood. What does that mean? How do we live? And so let's go back to verse 5. He explains, we are a holy priesthood to do what? To offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus. Everything we do is through Jesus. We're saved to Jesus, united to Jesus. Every act that we do for the glory of God is through Jesus. Now, priests make sacrifices, right? In the Old Testament, they took lambs and goats and bulls, and it was a bloody, bloody, bloody job. They constantly were covered in blood as they constantly made sacrifices. But now in the New Testament, we no longer make blood sacrifices because Jesus comes. He makes that one all-time sacrifice that is sufficient to cover the sins of all who believe in him. And so never, ever, 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 ever will there need to be a sacrifice again. Never will there need to be a sacrifice. Jesus has sufficiently paid the price for sins. He's absorbed the wrath of God. There is no more need for blood sacrifices. And so that is why he says we make spiritual sacrifices. So what are these spiritual sacrifices that we make? In Romans chapter 12, Paul uses similar language. He says we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. And then, right after that, he begins talking about how we live. He talks about the gifts that we have as believers. He talks about how we're to love one another, on how we're not to carry out vengeance, but we're to be patient, and we're to be zealous for good works. And so are these spiritual sacrifices referring to how we live on earth? Are they referring to the works that we do? Let's look now at First Peter, and let's look at context of what he's talked about. So I'm just going to mention some verses that are surrounding our passage. If you look at chapter 1, verse 14, Peter says, don't be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. Meaning, before you were believers, don't be like that anymore. We're to be different. Chapter 1, verse 16, he says, we're to be holy because God is holy. Remember, to be holy is devoted to God. We're to be devoted to God in all that we do because God is holy and we're now like Him. Chapter 2, verse 1, We read, put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Notice, we're all talking about our character, all our actions. 
Chapter 2, verse 2, we read that we're to long for pure spiritual milk, which means we're to long to grow in our knowledge and our understanding of the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 11, once again, we're to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He's very clearly saying, look, when you've come to faith, there's a new chapter. You've made a turn in your life. No longer do you live like you did, now you live differently. Chapter 2, verse 12, we read that our conduct is to be honorable among Gentiles, meaning unbelievers. And if you look at chapter 2, verse 9, we read, We are to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And remember, so verse 9 is unpacking what we read in verse 5. We are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness. And so if we put this all together, we see that our words and our actions are meant to be holy, meaning devoted to God. But we also see that all of our actions are directed towards others. Like verse 12, we read, our conduct is to be honorable among Gentiles. And so, as priests, we offer spiritual sacrifices to God as we speak and we serve other people. That's what our spiritual sacrifices are. We offer spiritual sacrifices to God as we speak and as we serve others. Meaning our words and our actions and our thoughts are to be a fragrant offering to God. This means we always have two audiences, right? We have the audience that's before us that we physically see one another, but then our other audience is always God because all of our actions are ultimately meant to be a fragrant aroma to God. Remember, Because of faith in Christ, you're a priest. You're a priest of God. Ultimately, what governs our words and our actions and our thoughts is God because they're to be an offering to Him. Have you ever thought that? Everything you say is an offering. Every action you take is an offering. It's to be lifted up to God, ultimately for His glory, ultimately to be pleasing aroma to Him. So if we shift now, we have another question, our third question. We want to understand, where is, Paul, where is Peter saying that we, we live this out? All of our words and actions, are they to be always an offering to God? Or is there just talking about certain places and certain times? Now today, we often say it's easy for us to, maybe we've said this or maybe we've heard others say this. You know, we're kind of one way in church and we're in a different way somewhere else. We speak one way here, we speak another way here. You know, if we're in church, we, we, we talk a certain way, right? We, we all of a sudden, we watch our language. But if we're out somewhere else, we don't really have to watch our language. You ever come across that kind of thinking? Maybe you fall into that thinking. We get into these, well, sure, I live this way here. Maybe at work, I live this way. At home, I live this way. At church, I live this way. Uh, if I'm with guys, I live this way. If I'm with girls, I live this way. And we constantly keep putting on these different masks saying, well, this is how I am. And so let's see what Peter is saying. Where do we live out this faith? What words and actions, when and where are they to be these fragrant offerings to God? So the question is, is where is our faith to be lived out? Now, in the medieval church, so this is kind of why we're looking at this today. Having a vocation or a calling referred exclusively to full-time church work. The only people who had callings, the only people who had vocations were those who worked within the church. If a person felt a calling, this was a sign, they were to have a vocation, which meant becoming a priest, a monk, or a nun. 
The ordinary occupations of life, like being a peasant farmer, a kitchen maid, making tools uh, or clothing, being a soldier or even a king, were acknowledged as necessary, but worldly. In a book called God at Work, Gene Veith, the author, this is what he writes. Under medieval Catholicism, if someone wanted to live a holy and pure life, they would seek a vocation in the religious order. You get the distinction? If you're going to be holy, you work in the church. This required a vow of celibacy, thus repudiating the vocations of marriage, parenthood, and family. It also required a vow of poverty, thus repudiating the economic vocations. It also required a vow of obedience. Now get this, which involved at that time coming under the authority of the church hierarchy and not civil authorities. In rejecting the clerical vows of celibacy, poverty, and obedience, Luther insisted that the seemingly secular estates that God had ordained for the human life are precisely the places where Christians are to live out their faith. And so what this means is Luther shows that vocations are not limited to the church. They're not limited to just being a monk or a nun or a priest, but God has given us all vocations in every aspect of our life that we would live for God, and thus all of us are holy before God, and thus all All of us are called by God, and thus all of us are called to give fragrant aroma sacrifices to God through our works and through our actions. This was revolutionary 500 years ago. People thought only only the priesthood, only the monks, only the nuns were holy. And everyone else, if, if this was 500 years ago, I mean, we need you to make life happen, but you guys don't have holy callings. You're nothing. That was the mindset. It's very much kind of like back uh, in the first century where the, the Pharisees were these exalted people. Wow, look at the Pharisees. They're, they're moral and they're high. Wow, they're so amazing. So 500 years ago, wow, the monks and the nuns, man, if you had a calling, man, you're really special. But see, the reason is, is, is because 500 years ago, the farmer's son would do what? He'd become a farmer, Right? The blacksmith's son would become what? He'd become a blacksmith. And so we just followed in our family. So there's no calling upon our life, so they thought. And so the only people who were called were the ones who were called into ministry because those in ministry were celibate. They didn't have wives. They didn't have children. And so therefore, they didn't, uh, no one was carrying on their name. So in order to move into the priesthood, you had to be called into that. So they were a very special elect class of people. And they were looked up to, and they looked down on others. And they were the holy people. Your work is necessary just to make it through Monday through Friday. But that's what you're good for. That was the mindset 500 years ago. But what Luther did, by studying the Word of God, he said, no, hold on. We are the priesthood of believers. We form the temple of God. God uses every vocation you have and I have, whether you're a mother, a father, a parent, employer, employee, boss, whatever it is, for His glory, for the demonstrating of the glory of God, to be a fragrant aroma to God. God uses all of our vocations. In fact, our vocations becomes the very context in which we live out our Christian life, right? Think about it. It's in our vocations. It's all those things that we mentioned. That's where you live. That's where I live. That's where we're called to live out our faith. And if we go back to chapter or to Peter, we see this clearly. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. 
Peter says we are to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to, to the governor or to the, or to the emperor or to the governor. Meaning every one of us are to subject ourselves as citizens of the state to the state. The No Christian, no priest is to be removed from that. But we're all to be subjected. We're all to be good citizens. In chapter 2, verse 18, we read, Servants, be subject to masters with all respect. We're looking at, today we might say, okay, this is more of an employee-to-employer relationship. And we're to be subject. We're to honor them. Chapter 3, verses 1-7, through Peter addresses how husbands and wives interact with one another, showing that this faith that we have is lived out in the vocation of our marriage. When Paul talks about how we live the Christian life in Ephesians and Colossians, he first, talks, he first talks about take off our old self, put on our new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of God. And then he says, we live this out as husbands, as wives, as children, as servants, and as masters. It's in these very vocations that you, that I, that we are called to be holy. It's in these vocations that we show others the love of Jesus. Which means every Christian has been given a variety of vocations of God in which they live as priests offering spiritual sacrifices to God. So just want to let this sit in. You are a priest, and in the context of your vocations, that is where you offer spiritual sacrifices to God. So mothers... When you are slaving at home, cleaning, cooking, shopping, changing diapers, not only are you showing your children the love of Jesus, not only are you showing your husband the love of Jesus, your actions, though widely at times we would say go unnoticed, are a pleasing aroma to God. Do you know that? That is the biblical reality of what you are doing. When you're at home and you're thinking, does this matter? Or I know many of you are kind of, as wives, I do the same thing over and over and it feels mundane at times. The biblical reality, the truth that is to in, inform the way we think is that those very actions are a pleasing aroma to God. Fathers, when you come home and you spend time building Legos with your children, going on walks with your wife, that's a pleasing aroma to God. Do you understand that? Those vocations are a pleasing aroma. That's where we serve others. We show them love. And God is glorified. When you go get your mail, and you see your neighbor, and you begin to talk to them, that is a God-ordained vocation. You have a neighbor. And that is a God-ordained moment that you would love them, that you would serve them, and that through your actions and your words, that that would be a fragrant aroma to God. Many of you are in the military. You have special vocation in which your relationships are largely based upon rank. And that's somewhat what many of us don't quite understand and can relate to. Um, but you've been placed in those positions to uniquely serve and show others the love of Jesus. The way that you operate should be very different in many ways than the other officers around you. And your actions are to be an aroma to God. And the way you serve those below you, and the way you serve those above you, and the way you lead them. If you're a student, and you're in high school, you're junior high, 
Maybe you're in elementary school. Maybe you play basketball like my son and I think others here. Or maybe you play soccer like others do. Or you're on football. Those are God-ordained vocations that not only would you love others and demonstrate the character of Christ, but that in doing so, your actions are a pleasing aroma to God. You ever think of that? Like on a soccer field, your actions are a pleasing aroma to God? On a football field, tackling someone? You have a vocation right there. It's unique in this setting, right? I mean, we're not tackling people always. But the way you do that, the way you handle yourself on the field, off the field, is the vocation that God has given you to be an aroma to Him, to be a spiritual sacrifice. Now, maybe you work in a cubicle. And you work in a place that not many see you. You have limited interaction with others. You're still serving your boss. You still serve those who benefit from your work. And whatever vocation you have, it does benefit others. We wouldn't do it if it had no benefit to others. It does benefit whether they see it readily or or indirectly at some other point. But regardless of that, we are demonstrating perseverance and faithfulness. Remember Colossians chapter 3.23. This is right after Paul talks about how we love um, or how we serve those, our families, our children, masters, and servants. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Remember, our number one audience is God at all times. He's the one, ultimately, all of our actions are meant to glorify, are meant to be a pleasing aroma. So even if we are somewhat removed from others, our actions are no less insignificant before God. Your actions are very significant because you are a priest to God, united to His Son Jesus. His Spirit dwells in you at every little moment. You get that? Like we only have so many big moments in life, right? Like marriage, moving to Italy, Like, you know, think about how many big moments do you have? But we have a million tiny moments. And those million tiny moments is where the Spirit dwells in you, that you are a priest. That all of your actions, all of your thoughts would be an aroma to God. God has given you talents, skills, and abilities. And He is using your vocation to serve others, to love others, and proclaim the gospel. God, before speaking creation into existence, ordained that you would be right now where you are at. Not only in this room, but the vocation that you have, the zip code that you are in, the house that you have, the neighbors that you have, the employment that you have, the friends that you have. He has ordained every single one of those moments. And he has done so, so that you would be used as a priest, as a kingly priest, for the purpose of offering spiritual sacrifices that through your actions and through your words, empowered by the Spirit, you would proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Do you know that? That's the biblical truth. It's the reality that we're brought into in this Bible. See, what the gospel does, it not only shows us the value of Jesus Christ and what He's done, but it shows us united to Him how we become valuable to God at every moment. And God loves us and counts us precious and wants to use us in every part of our life. In medieval culture, the religious order thought they were better than others. But what Luther did, and what we see in God's Word, is that as Christians, we are all 
equal before God. We might have different roles, and those roles have different authorities. Like husband and wife, they're equal, but have different authorities. That's what we see in Scripture. That's why the husband's called to lead and is the head of the wife. He's not better than the wife, but he's a different role. And so we, we have different roles, we have different authorities here, but we stand equal before God as a royal, kingly priesthood. So whenever you pump gas, change diapers, mow lawns, build houses, cut hair, work a cast register, make coffee, which hopefully we do daily, paint stripes on roads, punch numbers, work in office buildings, wear a tie, a suit, or a uniform, you are precious to God and you are holy to God. Through your words, through your actions, you proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. There are an aroma to God at every moment. Look, in every vocation we serve others. Never forget that. Even when we think no one is looking, we are serving. And ultimately we serve God. Because he's with us. Isn't that good news? He's with us. If you think your moments are insignificant, just remember the one who spoke creation into existence dwells with you. So as you change diapers, as you're mowing the yard, as you're doing those wonderful jobs in the house like picking up after the dogs and going, man, I hate this job. But remember, the creator of the universe, the one whose hand spans all of the universe is dwelling with you giving great significance to that moment that it would be pleasing to God so what is the result so summarize every moment is where we live out our vocation every moment our words and our actions are meant to be a fragrant aroma to God. There is nothing off limits because God is not off limits in our life. He didn't say, I call most of you. I call you Monday through Friday. You get the weekends off. That's not the Christian faith. He calls us, redeems us, transforms us, gives us a new identity in Him that we live with Him forever. So what is the result of living out our faith in our vocations? Go to verse 12. Keep your conduct honorable among, among the Gentiles honorable so that, there's a purpose statement, there's a purpose. Why do we want to keep our actions honorable? So that, for the very purpose, that when they, the Gentiles, unbelievers, speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Does that sound familiar? Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus says you're light, uh, light of the world. He says you're salt. In Matthew 5, 16, this is what Jesus says. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think Peter was there. I think he heard that. I think he's echoing that right now in chapter 2, verse 12. Here's what we need to understand. God's made us a holy priesthood. He's given us vocation so that our good works and words... I'm saying a lot of like just works. I'm not separating words here. Words and works would please God, but also that they'd be seen by others, that they would come to faith. The only way unbelievers, evildoers, will glorify God in the day of visitation if they have repented of their sins, confessed confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Luther said this, God does not need your good works. Your neighbor does. You get that? 
Like God's not saying, man, I need your good works because I can't do this without you. (laughs) He chooses to use us for the accomplishment of his plans. But our neighbors, because God chooses us, need us for the proclamation of the gospel, to live out the gospel, to show them the very character of Jesus, because God has ordained that that is the very means in which they'll come to know him. Does that make sense? You are the way that your neighbor will come to know Jesus. Your neighbor desperately needs your works. When we go to Lebanon, as we're talking about next year, Lebanon desperately needs us, little Timberline, to come to them, not because we're significant, but because our God is significant. He's going to use us as a means of proclaiming the gospel, that seeds would be planted, and hopefully more people will come to know Jesus. Your neighbor is anyone your vocation brings you into contact with. It can be your family member, a neighbor, a grocery clerk, your doctor, an employee, a friend, someone on your sports team, a classmate, the person sitting on the plane with you, or next to you as you wait in the DMV line. Which we love that line, don't we? God has chosen in his divine sovereignty to use you, to use me, to use believers, to use the priesthood, those he's given his very presence to as the means in which the gospel goes forth. So what this means is that God is using every moment in our lives for his good, to bring him glory, to bring a fragrant aroma to him, and for the good of others, that they ultimately would repent and believe in him. Now you might be thinking, I don't like my job. I didn't choose my job. This surely is not a calling of mine. Or maybe your neighbor. (laughs) I didn't choose him. I know God's not calling me to that neighbor. Or maybe it's, I didn't choose this class or these classmates, or I just bought a plane ticket. Do I really have to? I mean, this person's just sitting next to me. We didn't choose this. This wasn't a calling that I made. This is why Martin Luther, he said, our vocations are like the very masks of God. So what he means is God hides himself in the workplace, in the family, in the church, in the seemingly secular society. And to speak of God being hidden is a way of describing his presence um, as when a child is hiding in a room. uh, They're there, they're just not seen. And so God uses our vocations as a means of bringing us into contact with people that at all of those vocations, even those ones that we think we did not choose, God has chosen for us, that ultimately he has chosen that at that moment, in that time, we would serve him with our thoughts. We would serve him with our actions. We would serve him with our words. Remember, he is the one orchestrating all activities to the return of his son, Jesus Christ. He is sovereign at every single moment in history. You are where you're at today because of God's providence. Do you know that? The reason you're married, the reason you have children, the reason you have the job you have right now, even if it's one that you do not like or it's not your favorite job, the reason you moved to a different house or moved to Italy where you got to find a different house, it's all because of God's providence. You didn't have children because of your ability to have sex. You had children because God allowed you to have children. Go to the Old Testament. Those, he says, are barren or barren until he says they can have fruit, right? You're not married because your wife said, I do. You're married because God moved her to say, I do. Right? Like, think about it. We're not actually in charge of anything. The reason you breathe right now is not because your heart beats. It's because God says, let your heart beat. 
So we're here because of the very providence of God. Now, you might be thinking, okay, is this really the way the Bible talks, though? Well, let's look. Let's just look in, in Peter. We won't even go outside of Peter. Go to chapter 1, verse 2. He refers to the elect exiles, to those who are elect exiles, to those who have been chosen by God. According to what? The foreknowledge of God. Now, foreknowledge is not God looking way up in the future saying, are they going to choose me? Great, now I'll choose them. That's not foreknowledge. God's foreknowledge is that he, he plans all things. He knows all things ahead of time. He directs all things. Chapter 1, verse 20. Peter speaks of Jesus foreknown before the foundation of the world that he would come and be made manifest. Chapter 2, verse 8. Notice that even those who reject and disobey God, how does the Bible talk about it? They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That's how the Bible speaks. Chapter 2, verse 9. Notice the language on how the Bible speaks that we are his people. Royal priesthood, chosen race, royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. God is the one who has chosen. God is the one who has bestowed his grace. God is the one who is sovereignly in control. And the point is not to get us to begin debating, wait a minute, where does free will and all that? Like, those are good conversations. But the point is, life's not random. Your vocation is not an accident. Your spouse, your children, your coworker, your neighbor, your doctor's appointment are not accidents or mere chance but they're God's ordained vocations to which you have been called to proclaim the gospel for His glory and for their good that they would know the gospel, that they would repent and believe, and hopefully on the day that Jesus returns, they too would glorify God. God loves you and has placed you exactly where you are for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. We, as Timberline Baptist Church, have been placed here at this time in history for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel in this area, in 98503, and wherever else God directs us. Let me give you four things to think about as we close. We're kind of recap and summarize. Number one, you've been chosen by God. You're not a believer by accident. God has intentionally wrapped His grace and His mercy around you. Do you know that? Chapter 2 in Ephesians says we are dead in our sins. But chapter 2, verse 5, it says, but God made you alive by his grace. That's the good news of the gospel. Number two, you live in the very presence of God. You are never alone. You are a, you are a rock, a living rock. And you form the temple of God. Isn't that awesome? Together we form the temple of God. God's Spirit is in you at every moment, strengthening you so you can live out your faith. You are the, number three, you are a priest to God. Everything you do is to be a pleasing sacrifice to God. And this isn't one of those things, guys, you just need to try really hard. Because remember, the Spirit now lives in us, right? We've been made new, and He lives in us, empowers us, and strengthens us. So Peter, Paul, the New Testament writers are not saying, Try really hard so you can become a priest. You are a priest. You are precious to God. You have been given the Spirit of God. Now live in light of who you are in Jesus. You are a priest that God has chosen and given grace in His Spirit 
so that everything you do would be given great significance for his glory and for the good of others. Three things I think we'd at least need there. If we're going to continue to grow in our identity, to grow in our understanding, if we're going to be priests that glorify God, and these are all things that God has given us. Number one, the word. We need the word. That's why we preach the word. That's why table groups are characterized by the word. We want to be a people of the word. If we're going to be offering pleasing aromas to God, we need to be refined by the word. Number two, we need prayer. We need to depend upon God. Because this is not your strength, this is not my strength, because I can't do it, and you can't do it. Together we can't do it, but in Christ we can. So we need to pray. We need to depend upon God. Number three, we do need one another. Because God does work through you, and he works through me for the purpose of encouraging, for the purpose of building up, for the purpose of you reminding me that I'm a missionary, and me reminding you that you are a missionary, and you have the Spirit of God in you, that at every moment you can share the gospel. And number four, Number one, you've been chosen by God. Number two, you live in the presence of God. Number three, you are a priest to God. Number four, your actions result in others glorifying God. Your spouse, your children, your neighbors, your coworker, your doctor, your waiter, your waitress, your boss, whoever, they need your spiritual sacrifices. Our lives are the very testimonies God uses as a means for others coming to faith so they too would glorify God. That is what it is to be the priesthood. That's what Luther was intent on us knowing, on the church knowing at that day, and that is what we need to know today. At every moment, you are a priest for his glory. I'm going to pray, and the men are going to come forward, and we're going to now take communion. And in this communion, we celebrate that Christ has come. For what? The purpose of making us into the priesthood that we would live with him forever. So I'll go ahead and ask the men to come forward and I'll pray. Father, Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that your son has died on the cross so that we could be saved, so that we could be forgiven, so that you'd give us your spirit and so that we would be made into a temple, into the very dwelling place of God. That your spirit lives in us, that we would become priests, kingly priests, just like you, Jesus. Because we're not, you're united to you by faith. And Lord, I pray, as we take communion now, help us to understand we are who we are only because of you, Jesus. It is not because of our effort, is not because of anything that we have done, but solely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Lord, as we take communion now, may it be a celebration of who you are, may it be an affirmation of who we are in you, and may we go out from this table boldly proclaiming in every vocation that we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your name, Jesus, amen.